Well, good morning, folks. Um, I guess someone, namely Luke, was asking if I would address the, uh, or if I was going to address the situation in the Middle East. Um, I suppose I could briefly. The, uh, the Bible really talks about a situation that kind of lines up with what, I mean, I'm not saying it's going to happen at this time, but it, it, the, the parts are all there for the situation of a passage like Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39. If you want to go and look at it in your own studies and kind of read that chapter, you'll notice a whole series of nations are mentioned that are going to invade the land of Israel. And this is what many people have uh, wrongly attributed to the Battle of Armageddon. It's not the Battle of Armageddon. It's an event that is not restricted uh, to any kind of a timeline. In other words, the events of Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39 can happen at any time. And what it reveals is that Israel is going to be massively invaded by its surrounding territories. And if I recall correctly, Egypt is not amongst them, which is very interesting. And it's going to invade the land, and as a consequence of this mass invasion, and think about how it was attacked here this last time. It was uh, through like people getting those little, uh, you know, little mini airplanes with a big propeller on the back, you know, the like, glider type of the things, and they're just coming in in any and every way you could think of, and they're saying this was a problem. Well, I always thought the best way to fly under the radar of Israeli defenses is to come in on horseback, <laughs> in mass. And in fact, that's exactly what the passage reveals to us. And so uh, it seems that Ezekiel 38 talks about the land being overwhelmed with this mass of invaders coming in. And in Israel, they have this, uh, this doctrine, it's called the uh, Samson, it was the Samson Complex. Yeah, and uh, what are they, Samson Complex? Option, thank you, Samson Option. And, the, and, and it's basically, if you remember the story of Samson, he pushes down the pillars and sacrifices himself in order to kill the Philistines. And what, what that basically means is that Israel, who does have the nuclear bomb, will drop it upon themselves if they have that big of an invasion coming into the land. And, uh, and then uh, what, what you find in Ezekiel 38 and 39 there is that it talks about a situation that very looks very much like a nuclear armament, the, the, the protocol in the military, how to deal with a nuclear armament after it happens. You go around and mark the bodies with flags. And if you read the passage, it literally talks about this, you know, marking the bodies and all these types of things. And so you can do your own study. You can listen to some of my studies I think I did in years past upon that. But I look at the current situation, I think Iran obviously wants the United States involved because they're jihadists. They want the United States to get into the great Satan to get involved in the conflict. And the current resident, I mean president, needs a distraction. Put the two and two together. And that's why someone was asking me this morning, well, talking about the, the, the intelligence lapse that has taken place. Why didn't they pick this up? When they never have a precedent of missing anything in the intelligence in years past, always ahead of the curve, and then suddenly, out of the blue, they miss this one. It makes you think, like, remember Arsenio Hall from the 90s? It may, things that make you go, hmm. <laughs> you know, that's, that's an interesting one. Why, hmm, why now? Why right before the, uh, the, the uh, 2024 selection? I mean, uh, elections. You know, so it's, um, it's an interesting thing that's coming on the world. And, of course, we've been looking at Revelation, We've been talking about those things. You can go back and listen to uh, maybe some of the studies in Revelation 13 we recently did. We talked about seven conditions that Revelation 13 assumes are taking place on the earth when these events happen. And we went through those conditions. We're like, oh, all the ingredients are here as they've never been here before. I'm not saying it's going to happen tonight and tomorrow or whatever else. 
But I think we are on good grounds to say with what Jesus said in Matthew 24, when you see these things begin to happen, look around and freak out and hunker into the mountains. doesn't say that. Lift your eyes up, which is a discipline. You guys know that, right? It's a discipline. Lift your eyes up, because I feel like going... <laughs> Who's going to get me? <laughs> Lift your eyes up, for your redemption draws nigh. And so the redemption he talks about is what we'll talk about here this morning, the redemption of your body. You'll have an actual body that isn't all jacked up anymore. Pretty good deal. But Revelation chapter 16, I want to read the first um, 11 verses of the chapter. I'm not going to look at it in detail here this morning. I'm looking at one general principle of the passage. And we're continuing in these studies. If you haven't been with us, uh, there is some previous knowledge that you need to know to get caught up to date. But I can't catch everyone up every single week, so <laughs> bear with me. But Revelation chapter 16, and verse 1, And then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And so the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and the sea became like blood, the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. A third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, trust, true and just are your judgments. Verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. And they were scorched, verse 9, by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Lord, clearly the message here is that you have desired men to repent of their deeds. And that simply means to change our mind. There's been many things that we believe to be true that aren't. And there's many things that we need to know. Namely, that you are the only wise God. Uncreated. And so, God, I pray that you'd meet us here this morning. You'd fill us with your Holy Spirit. You'd bind the work of a very real and active enemy. That if we're proud people, and all of us have pride, but if we're proud people, we'll believe every thought that comes into our head is you. But you've told us to test the spirits, to see whether or not they're from God. I pray for clarity this morning. I don't want entertainment, neither do they. We want to be taught, but the problem is I'm standing up front. <laughs> great limitation. What a greater way for you to be glorified and you to speak to the hearts of men and let this text that sounds complicated and confusing perhaps, let it be very clear. Heal our hearts, Lord. 
Forgive our sins. Put the blood of your son Jesus upon the doorposts and the lentils of this house. Bind his work here. Let there be clarity and peace. All glory goes to you. For in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Revelation 16, as we've seen, is a culmination of a series of events that begin in chapter 4 with a courtroom scene that is given to us in the heavens. And it was ultimately there where the books were opened and judgments were beginning to be had and meted out in increased measures upon the earth through the series of trials. Later on in the book, in chapter 20, it says, And I saw dead, the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And this courtroom setting is what we saw in our previous study as the divine council. In Psalm 82, it says, verse 1, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And what we saw is those gods aren't on equal par with the one, the true, the only living God who created everything. Because in our minds, connotatively, we said a God means he's the creator. Well, that doesn't what, that's not what it means. Elohim just means a spirit being. And Yahweh is the creator. The I am is the creator. And he is an Elohim, but not all Elohims are Yahweh. There's a species uniqueness to Yahweh alone. And so God says in Psalm 82 that he takes his place in the divine council. It's a very biblical term. And the same idea is given to us in 1 Kings in chapter 22 and verse 19, where it describes this vision of Micaiah, the prophet, of the divine council. And there he sees the Lord sitting upon his throne. And the heavenly host surrounding him. In verse 19, it says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And that's the same thing in Job chapter 1. It's all through the Old Testament, but in Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And people ask, Well, why in the world is Satan among them? I said, Because it's a courtroom. What do you mean? He's a lawyer. <laughs> Good analogy. Just joking, John, uh, Mark. Uh, but, but the reality, that's a whole discussion in itself. Why is Satan there? There's a reason behind that. But for our purposes here, court is being held in heaven. And so while the Bible shows us that there's a court in heaven that will deal with the problems that we're presently facing here upon this earth as we live for Christ, it also shows us that we are to judge nothing. We, us, we are to judge nothing before the time, that we can pray to God, we can petition, we can present our requests to God in the heavens, but we ourselves are not to judge according before the time. In Colossians in chapter 4 and verse 5, it says, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And the reality is, as I live upon this earth, the only way that I can do that is if I enter in by faith. You and I, the Christian, were to enter into faith that judgment will come. Not by us, because if you don't believe it'll come, you'll try to enact it. But we enter into faith that judgment's going to come, and it'll come at the coming of our Lord. And the reason I would suggest to you that we naturally want to judge situations, and that's in all of us, isn't it? And we want to judge other people is not just because we want to take the attention off ourselves, although that's true of some people, 
the reason we really innately want to do this is because we're actually created originally in Genesis in chapter 1 to have dominion over the earth. And the problem that we have is now sin has entered into us, so God says, eh, time out. You're going to screw things up. Genesis chapter 1, there it says, I grant you dominion in verses 26 and 27. But the problem, as I've said, we have a sin nature that lives within us. And that sin nature hinders us from exercising that dominion effectively. It's blurred our sight in the presence of conflict. And each one thinks that he sees perfectly. The man of faith says, I don't. The man of faith doesn't trust his own vision. Or to put it in the terms of the Proverbs, lean not upon your own understanding. He fundamentally distrusts his observations. It doesn't mean your observations aren't real, but it's you realize there's more factors than what your limited mind can see. And the devil always creates evidences for you to follow down a path of destruction. It's Golem sprinkling the bread on Samwise Gamgee. He creates the evidence and he says, look, he ate it. That's the way the devil always works. And if you're a person driven by sensual wisdom, I saw it, I saw the bread, that's good enough for me. I say, idiot, you're going to fall for the devil's trap every time. And the Bible is very clear that this is how the devil works, by sensual wisdom. And therefore, God, knowing the condition of man and the desire within him to rule, he enacts his law, the, the scriptures, the law of God, and it's something now that's external from us, and it's an objective standard that allows us in our fallen nature to be governed until the redemption comes, namely the resurrection body where sin is removed from the man. In the meantime, we're forgiven for our sins, but I hate to break it to you, the sin nature lives within you, within all of us. And so through the law, he limits the boundaries outside of our being that tempers the sin nature and the sin that lives within us. And yet the creation still desires to be ruled and we still desire to rule. And that's precisely what the conflict was being faced in Romans in chapter 8. In verse 19, it says, The whole creation eagerly waits the revelation of the sons of God. Wait, I thought we already were the sons of God. You are, but you're not. And the whole creation saying, man, I wish I could see a son of God for real. And that's our problem. They see us dimly. They see us in part. And we have a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, but we aren't who we are supposed to be yet. And he says the whole creation eagerly waits for the revelation of the sons of God. It was subjected to futility, not by its own choice, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And we know that the entire creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And he describes a frustration in the creation because it's not having dominion exercised over it in the way that God intended it to be. And thus the creation yearns for redemption of the sinful man so that once again, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, to borrow the analogy of C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, could rule Narnia again. They need to sit upon the throne. And until they are, things aren't right where it's always winter and never Christmas. And the reason the creation is forced to wait for the revealing of the sons of God is because that although, as I've said, we are right now sons of God, we're only seen in part. 
We received a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, as Ephesians 1.13 talks about this. But we don't have the inheritance yet. We just got a drop in the bucket. It's called the person, the impartation of the Holy Spirit. Or as John says in his epistle, what we will be has not yet been revealed. That's why he says in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children or sons of God now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. And we know that when he appears, speaking of Jesus, we shall be like him. Why? Because you're going to have a body changed in a moment. We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And it's what Paul said that we shall have a body likened unto his own glorious body in Philippians. A glorious body is a body without any sin within it. And thus when we consider the future glory that's going to be revealed in us, as Romans 8 says, where there is no sin, I think we now understand what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 2.10, where he says, but it is written, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, what he is going to do is going to totally blow your mind. <laughs> and while the court is taking place in heaven, even today, right now, and creation is waiting for the revelation of the sons of God, man, you and I, in the meantime, are repeatedly told to enter into faith. And this exact phrase is used in Revelation, wait a little longer. Come on, God, get them. And he says, yeah. Wait a little longer. And in fact, that's what it says in Revelation 6, 11. This is just one example of it. It says, speaking of these ones who were killed, martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ, are now in the heavens under the altar, under the fifth seal. And they're crying out to God. And they each were given a white robe and told to wait a little longer, verse 11 says of chapter 6, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And thus the reason, in case I didn't make, make it very clear, which is entirely possible, the reason the Bible says vengeance is mine, not yours, it's mine, saith the Lord. The reason it says that is because you and I, we can't get it right until we have a resurrection body. And thus the Bible's declaration, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I would suggest carries a profound wisdom it acknowledges that true justice, true justice, perfect in its execution, can't be achieved until we attain the resurrection ourselves. And therefore, God alone can judge righteously, impartially, perfectly. And in the meantime, he's given us his law, an external standard to temper the wickedness that is within man. And the spirit of the law is manifest in the book of Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. We sing a song about it. He has shown the old man what is good. And that whole scene was a courtroom scene. Look at verse 1, Micah 6. It's a courtroom scene in heaven. And God is making his judgments. And then he says, he has shown the old man what is good and what the Lord requires of you. To do justly. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, but love mercy. And then walk humbly before the Lord your God. And I think we know that humility is essentially the opposite of pride. And we're to walk humbly before the Lord. 
The nature of pride, I would suggest to you, is making myself in some way or another of making myself equal with God. What was the devil's sin? It was pride. What the scripture reveals. And he says, I will be like God. And the nature of pride is in some way placing myself on the same level as God. But we're to walk humbly before the Lord our God. We're to do right, to love mercy, and to put it another way, we are not to place ourselves on the same level of God, which in the context is playing judge and jury during the trial of Micah chapter 6. Don't do this. And it speaks of the spirit that is to be there. You say, well, what about truth? We can speak truth. There are rights and wrongs, but we need to be careful in how we assess situations on limited information, lest we do great evil in the name of doing good. And this is the trap of the devil. And that's not a stretch. 1 Timothy 3.6 tells us that the trap of the devil is pride. In the context, he's talking about new believers, how they get trapped. But the point is, the trap is the trap. And his method is to appeal to that pride within man. As James calls it, sensual wisdom in James chapter 3. Taste, touch, see, smell, and hear. Breadcrumbs sprinkle on Samwise Gamgee. I've got all the proof. There it is. The breadcrumbs. Ha! Guilty! And the reason we say this is because the Bible says the last days are going to be known for this. The spirit of the accuser is going to be manifesting throughout the world. Slander, accusation, but they overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And the fact is, he'll give you evidence to prove to you the accusations that he's making against God's servants and prophets are accurate. And if you're proud and you believe everything that comes into your head, you believe you have all the information, you'll draw a picture of your own making. It's like the constellations, they don't exist. Did you know that? The Big Dipper doesn't exist. We've just selected certain stars and said, hey, look, it's a Big Dipper. Yep, it does look like a Big Dipper, but keep one out. Add a few more. Grab some of the other stars around it. You can draw a completely different picture. And most of us only have points of information, but then we use our heart to draw the lines and connect the dots. As a man is inwardly, so he judges outwardly. And the lines are a reflection of the heart of man. When we have a resurrection body, there's no sin within it. And as I said, then and only then will Christ's word come true. When he says in Revelation chapter 2 to the church in Thyatira, to the one who conquers, watch this, to the one who overcomes, and who keeps my works until the end. It's called the perseverance of the saints. To him I'll give the authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when the earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. So once again, we can overcome. Once we overcome, he says, we can rule. And I asked myself the question, I says, what are we to overcome? And there's a lot of things to overcome, right? I had a bad day, overcome. <laughs> I had a bad thought, duh, overcome. Are we supposed to overcome mean people? Is that what he's saying? What are we to overcome? Well, in the biblical narrative, the greatest thing to overcome is death. Those of you who know the Bible know this. And those other things are just sins. And all the sin we do only leads to death. So how's death overcome? Death is only overcome by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
That's why it says in Revelation 20 and verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So notice the concept of ruling and reigning with Christ is consistently in the scripture linked to the resurrection of the believers, specifically when they receive the glorified bodies. So that while death is the ultimate adversary, sin is the root cause. And yet through the resurrection, God restores the bodies that sin have brought to death. He interestingly uses death to eradicate sin from the body in the same way that if you had cancer, God forbid, that when your body dies, it kills the cancer along with the body. And then he grants believers the promise of eternal life after that cancer of sin is killed, but only through a resurrected body. It's what the Bible calls a glorified body. And it's then and only then that we can participate in the rule of Christ. Same concept in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54. It says, when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? But until then, here in Revelation 16, God alone is judging man. Man can petition. You and I can petition the throne of heaven. Say, God, it's not fair. We can ask him to act. We can ask him to intercede. But we can't judge. Not yet. Too many factors that you and I don't have the privilege of understanding. Have you ever gotten angry with God? God, why don't you act? Why don't you wipe them out? It would be a good time for you to show your sovereignty, Lord. You know, I mean, you're just, I've got a few suggestions, you know, uh, a thumb from heaven, you know, about the size of Sandpoint, squish them. Real quick, like an ant in my backyard. I mean, it's no big deal for you, Lord. Why don't you deal with them, Lord? Why don't you deal with them? But we get angry because we think we know everything. We don't. There's more that we don't know than we do know. And what we do know is skewed by the sinful nature that lives within us perpetually. And so as we discussed last time, as the scene in heaven in Revelation 16 unfolds in this courtroom setting... And chapter 16 is the finality of that courtroom setting, where judgments are administered within the context of the divine council. These judgments are being made by God alone. And he judges man based upon, as the text reveals, based upon their treatment of the servants of God. Revelation 16 and verse 6, as we just read, it says, For they have shed the blood of the saints, the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. If I love you, I love your children, right? If I hate you, I hate your children. And in the same way, how I treat God's kids is how I truly think about God. Words are cheap. Actions speak louder than words. They have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and there's more than one way to kill a man. Yet they believe in their minds that we're doing the works of the Lord. And every indication of the text is that's exactly what's going on. 
The verse I've quoted that probably a thousand times in John 16, the time's coming, Jesus said prophetically, it says men are actually going to kill you and they're going to think they're offering a service to the Lord. It's religious persecution of the last days. The first murder in the Bible is Cain killed Abel. It's a religious murder. The last murders in the Bible are religious. They are men and women who truly believe they're serving the true and the living God. They heard a voice and they go out with all authority, but they're not disciplined enough because of their pride to look at the fruit of what they're doing and objectively look at themselves and keep them under restraint by an external standard, namely the law. But if you're full of love, there's no need for the law. But if love is absent, you better submit to the law because there's a nature that is condemned within us. In Acts chapter 9, Saul, before he came Paul the apostle, he's on his way to Damascus to persecute the Christians. And the Lord Jesus himself appears to Saul, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul probably thought to himself, persecuting you, Lord? Never done that in my life. What are you talking about? I'm just persecuting these Christians. (laughs) But Saul wasn't just persecuting the Christians. He was persecuting Christ. Why? Because there is a unity between Christ and his servants. How you feel about his servants reveals your true heart to God. Jesus is basically in the conflict with the Pharisees saying, you say you love God, but you hate me. You don't know the Father that I know. If you really were seeking the voice of the Father, you would know that the words that I'm saying came from him. But because you just pretend, basically, is what he's saying, that's why you hate me. And they were jealous of the authority that he had in his life because religion for them was not about glorifying God. It was about them establishing themselves as experts in all things divine. And the Pharisees hated Christ, but they claimed to love God. Cain brought sacrifice to God, but he killed his brother Abel. And all throughout history, there are those screaming contradictions in the religious realms. But I'd suggest to you there's actually an evil power behind this religious charade, even as it was in John chapter 8. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we wrestle against, not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Who's Paul wrestling with? People? No, immature people who are proud do that. You learn a bit of information and you think you know everything. No, spiritual darknesses and powers that are manipulating mankind are tagged as the enemy. And oftentimes the persecutors of God's faithful servants are religiously inclined. And because they're good religious people, they have to craft narratives to legitimize their obvious attacks that are wrong. What do you mean? They did this to Jesus in Matthew chapter 26. Now the chief priests and the whole council, verse 59, the whole council were seeking false testimony. They're seeking false testimony against Jesus. (laughs) I mean, Jesus said, if they did this to me, they're going to do it to you. And they did this, it says, so they might put him to death. When someone starts maligning you, Given the opportunity in a heartbeat, they would kill you and not feel bad about it. How do you have jihadists in Israel going in and cutting off the heads, decapitating babies? How do you have that? They truly believe they're serving God, 
But it doesn't just happen in Islam. It happens within Christianity. It's just that we can't get away with doing such a vile or gross act. It offends our sensibilities that we have about ourselves. (laughs) And they sought Jesus. It says in the text, but they found none. And though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And that's not an isolated event. Over and again in the Gospels, they're watching him very closely, hoping to find something by which they can prove to everybody else he's evil. And therefore, our actions were valid. You you thought we were wrong in what we were doing, but we were just seeking truth. Okay? And here's the problem. You and I were created with a conscience. And the conscience is basically an inner truth detector. And when you sin, you know it. When you lie, you know it. These Pharisees knew it. It was no different for them. And every time they did this against Jesus, they were betraying their own conscience. But they had taken such a strong public stand against him because of their pride. They couldn't admit they were wrong, so they began to look for evidences that he was wrong so they can maintain the faulty opinion they had about themselves. We were truly spiritual men. See, I told you, finally I've been vindicated. (laughs) And they knew what they were doing was wrong because they had a conscience. But driven by their pride, they had to do it. In order to live with their conscience, people, they often have time to to create evidence to support their narrative. And guess what? They found it. And if they found it with Jesus, they'll find it with you. Jesus said, this is the spirit that is going to happen to all of you in the last days. At the first coming of Christ, At his last days, the spirit was pervasive. And he says, now my body, the church, in your last days, the same spirit will be there, and the love of most is going to grow cold. That word love is agape, a word that the New Testament almost invented because it was so rarely used. And the Christian church introduced that word into the common Koine Greek of the time. And so Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Each time we lie, it gets worse and worse. Each time we lie, we believe our lies more and more. And the more and more we believe our lies, the further and further we enter into the kingdom of darkness, which chapter 16 talks about. They were plunged into darkness. How did they persecute Jesus? They spoke all sorts of evil about him. They said, for instance, he's a drunkard and a friend of prostitutes. I hate to break it to you. When they're saying he was a friend of prostitutes, they weren't saying he was friendly to prostitutes. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus was friendly to prostitutes. What they were saying, though, is he's frequenting prostitutes. He's an adulterer, a fornicator. He's evil. He lives a duplicitous lifestyle. He's getting drunk at night and he's sleeping around. No man at 33 years old is single in our culture. You get married as a late teenager. Come on. Matthew 11 and verse 19, he said, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, Behold, a gluttonous and wine-bibber, 
a friend of publicans and sinners. But the next phrase is most telling. Jesus then said in the very next phrase in Matthew eleven nineteen, but wisdom is justified by her children. You say all these evil things about me, but look at the fruit coming out. Look at my children. Jesus had no physical children. But look at this. It's justified. You're saying that there's this horrendous lifestyle. But look at the fruit. They called him a bastard. And in that culture, that ruined the man. They scrutinized him to see if they could find anything wrong in order to justify their attacks of him. Because God knows they're good religious people. They never make mistakes. It's all in humility. No, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly before your Lord. These Pharisees were failing on at least two of those points. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 7, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him. You see that repeated phrase in Scripture. They watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. And Jesus' entire life was being attacked by the very people that thought themselves to be the servants of God. In fact, they were finally successful. They killed him. And you and I may be killed in one way or another. And the Bible has never guaranteed that we're going to escape these things. In fact, it's promised that as the days wax worse and worse, it's going to happen. And if we're driven by sensual wisdom and our pride, we will play the part of the devil, the trap of the devil, and think we're offering a service to God. But God will vindicate you. Jesus rose from the dead. They finally did the worst they can do to him. And guess what? Bling, I'm back. In their minds. And in the same regard, that God has never promised us any kind of alleviation. But he did promise you this, which chapter 16 reveals. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. That's in Romans 12. It's in Deuteronomy 32. The principle is portrayed in chapter 16. And so I ask you the morning, do you believe in the vengeance of the Lord? If you don't, if you just have a squishy Jesus, you'll despair. If all you have is a squishy Jesus, you lose hope. And you'll be frustrated. But in fact, you can only live the Christian life when you believe, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. When he comes along and says, love your enemies. If you don't believe vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, you will say, I can't. But if you believe him, you say, yes, Lord. They do not determine my conduct. And if you don't believe that God avenges the wrongs, you will avenge the wrongs. Do you understand? If you truly believe that God will bring everything into the light, if you truly believe this, then it's only then that you can remain steadfast and faithful and unmovable and unshakable in the things God has called you to do in the midst of severe and increased promised tribulation and persecution. And the fact is the devil wants you and I to quit. But don't. Why? Because the squishy Jesus loves me. That's going to burn out pretty quick. Why? 
because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And Jesus' entire life was marked by relentless attacks from those who considered themselves to be the servants of the Lord. So the judgments are, number one, a vindication of the servants of God, as it says in Revelation 3. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they're Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Can you imagine how painful that day is going to be for them? They were so convinced you were false, and they dedicated their lives to displaying to everybody else that you're false. And then all of a sudden, at the end day, because you didn't quit. God says, um, buddy, come here. You know, the fact that you say you loved me, but you hated my servants. Well, we're going to have another conversation. It has, it has to do with this word, depart from me. But we'll talk about that in a minute. But before we do that, get on your knees and declare publicly that he, she was my servant. And he says, I'm going to force them to do this. So the judgments are, number one, a vindication. Number two, it's retribution. As it says in verse 6, it's what they deserve. For they've shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. But number three, I'd add one more. I would say that it's also salvation. For with the statement, still they wouldn't repent in verse 11, this statement betrays the third reason for these trials. It was to get men to repent. But they wouldn't. But let God be true and every man a liar. He'll be fair to every man. And they won't repent because of their pride. That's the only reason men don't repent. It's pride. And the world looks at you like a freak if you say we need to walk in humility. In verse 1, you'll notice the word for wrath in the Greek is orge. We've talked a great deal about that word. Orge, as you found, signifies this type of divine wrath characterized by patience. It's a slow-burning anger that builds over time. It's the same thing like a mentor guiding and disciplining a student in the hope of bringing about a positive change within them. If the student resists the discipline, the disciplines become more severe, thus the series of plagues. Another way to think of it is think of it like a river. It starts off the orge wrath. It starts off very calm, relatively speaking, trying to get men to repent. And if people don't follow the guidance, the river becomes rougher as they resist. However, this increasing roughness is still the orge wrath. It goes to light rapids, to heavy rapids, to really heavy rapids, but that's still the patient anger of God. It's a measured response. But when these bowls are finally poured out, when they're completed, all seven of them, then it's his thumos anger, which is thundering anger. In Revelation 15 and verse 1, it says, Then I saw a sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the thumos, the wrath of God, is finished. And so these bowls essentially accomplish two things. Number one, they prompt individuals to engage in an introspection and hopefully a modification of their conduct. But number two, with the final vial being poured out, it marks the end of God's patience with man. And his thumos begins. Now, if we had the time and I had the will, we could look at the plagues in one sense that they have a parallel to the plagues that are given to us in Egypt. 
They both involve, remember, Pharaoh's children of Israel are coming out of Egypt and the plagues, the ten plagues that come against them. There's parallels here. They both involve a catastrophic event sent by God against a people who are attacking the servants of God, right? They both were a direct assault against the false gods in chapter 16 and in Egypt. In Egypt, the turning of the water into blood was a direct challenge to their god Hapi, H-A-P-I. He was the deity of the Nile, so he turns it into blood. And this god was believed to bring fertility to the land through the river. The plague of frogs was an affront to the frog-headed goddess Heket, H-E-K-E-T. He was directly attacking their gods. The darkness plague was a direct challenge to their sun god Ra, R-A. And we could go on and on. But here in chapter 16, he's exposing the kingdom of the Antichrist. And in fact, it says at the end of the chapter that three spirits like frogs came out. I always think of Ghostbusters. Remember that movie from years ago? I didn't see the new ones. Something strange in your neighborhood. Who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. And they come out of the dragon, the Antichrist or the beast, and the false prophet. The three spirits go throughout the earth. But notice there in in verse 10, uh, the darkness in verse 10. Notice the fire in verse 8. Darkness and fire. Notice the suffering in verse 2. Notice the death in verses 3 and 4 and the destruction. What's going on? Darkness, fire, suffering, death, destruction. Remember that term I brought up, theological messaging? While I believe these events are literal, there's also a message in the literalness of the events. What's the theological message? What is God speaking of? Put it another way. What event or place in the Bible is full of darkness, fire, suffering, death, and destruction? Hell. He's giving these men on earth a preview in the first five plagues of hell. And the reality is that Jesus, by the way, this hasn't happened yet. And his warnings are intermittent periods of his grace. And the Bible says that Jesus comes to give you life. He said, I've come to give you life and to give it to the full. He says that in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. That's the Antichrist in his kingdom. He comes to steal and to kill and destroy. But I have come to give you life so that you could have it to the full. And the devil's a liar. He promises life, but he only brings death. The fact is, is that God in his grace has given these men a preview of hell, and he warns men so they could turn and have life. I don't think I want to say anything else. God, I thank you for the grace. It looks like we have communion here this morning. The the gentleman can come forward and and, um, distribute. But God, even as bread nourishes us, so you nourish us. Even as the, the, the cup cleanses us, you cleanse us. And God, we need your grace. You said in Revelation 12 that we overcome by the word of our testimony and the blood of the Lamb. 
when the accuser of the brethren waxes worse and worse and more and more bold, it looks like he's winning. But then you come back after your servants are not only deadened in heaven, but perhaps on earth and in despair. You come back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and you put down that false kingdom that men have erected through their pride. Or rather, men have been manipulated to erect through their pride. And God, I pray that you'd give us the grace to walk in that, that wisdom. He has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Do justly, but you better love mercy, and you better not place yourself on equality with God. You better walk humbly before the Lord your God, knowing that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Heal our hearts, Lord. Forgive our sins. Give us the grace and the wisdom to judge nothing before the time. Let us understand what the devil's methods are, not thinking our situation to be unique. It's not unique. It's a demonic spirit promised to come upon the land in the last days, and the love of most is going to wax cold. Men are going to get worse and worse. They're going to betray one another. And God, I pray that you protect our hearts from that kind of pride that lifts us up in such notions that the fruit of what we're doing has no connection to the root. Let us be wise. Let us walk in the way of the master and the king. Please heal our hearts, forgive our sins. Let us enter into the faith that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, so that we won't partake in the kingdom of our enemy. We pray for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.